welcome to Business for Optimists, a podcast for new ideas, innovation, and disruption. I'm Johanna, your host, and my thing really is asking just why things are done a certain way. Together with my guests, I'm exploring paths on how we can care about people, purpose, and the planet as much as we care about profit as entrepreneurs. Now, let yourself be inspired by those who are shaping the future of business. Today I'm joined by Dr. Nakima Steffebauer. She's the CEO of Frown Loop, an organization teaching women how to code, an angel investor, and an advocate for algorithmic equity, among many other things she does. In our conversation, Nakima and I talk about systemic bias in technology and diversity in tech and funding. But our conversation also took us into a whole range of topics, including the value that can be found when you go away from traditional routes, how a lot of tech innovation seems to come from a need to replace labor once done by the founders mothers. I thought this was a particularly um, entertaining thought that I actually can't get behind. <laughs> and what barriers um, marginalized groups still face in today's world of tech, because we're still seeing money going to the same types of founder over and over and over again and VCs still do look quite the same even though there's a little bit of movement but it's still not enough so I would say take a seat <laughs> pretend that you're having a coffee with Nakima and I in a well digital cafe in this case and Take a look at what can be done to break down the barriers that we're talking about and learn more about what Nakima is already doing in this space because she is doing a lot of work and she's been very impactful. All right, here we go. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Well, hi, Nakima. Thanks so much for coming um, to the show and doing this. I always start the podcast um, by asking my guests how they got into tech. How did you get to where you are right now? And what do you how do did also? I... <laughs> and what do I do? Yeah. <laughs> um, interesting question. Well, first, thanks for having me. This is a pleasure. We've been talking about this for a while um, since our our mutual introduction at the uh, in the frame of. Um, diversifying the venture capital space. Um, but my path to the venture capital space, as well as the tech space, was really premeditated by the time that I spent researching and trying to bridge the gap back in grad school between looking at how different communities, in my case, in North Africa and in the Middle East, we're dealing with technology and modernity and adapting to the circumstances of kind of the new world with, mm -hmm. with digital access to, you know, the online. Um, that's where I started in mm -hmm. grad school. That's where I gravitated towards when I was visiting different countries in North Africa and talking about very theoretical, very kind of historically relevant events and turning points and trends that might make for a good um, dissertation subject. Uh, and everything changed for me when I hit the ground in, um, in Syria. 
which at the time was still under Hafez al-Assad, incredibly repressive, very closed. No one outside of Syria had any idea what was going on in <laughs> Syria. Um, and unless you were with Human Rights Watch, you didn't care. And I just kind of did my semi-anthropological thing and discovered that actually what was much more interesting to people who lived in the country and who were dealing with all of this clash of cultures, modernity, technology, was trade and was making a living and was business and the different ways and hoops that you had to jump through to conduct it. And that led me to looking at informal trade and labor flows and looking at mm-hmm. black market trade and labor flows. I ultimately ended up tying that to civil unrest, civil conflict, but that was my initial kind of motivation and it ended up being the, the subject of my thesis was you know black market trade as a response to all of these mm-hmm. um, competing pressures moving out of that space and moving away from the academic approach to social and cultural problems and movements mm-hmm. um, I found myself back in New York City when everyone was desperately trying to work in tech mm-hmm. and get stock options and get rich and become <laughs> a tech person. Um, and I realized that, um, well, I was in New York, so nobody cared about the Middle East. Nobody understood where North Africa even was. Like, mm-hmm. What does that have to do with anything that matters? And, um, and realizing that there was exactly the same kind of split that I'd been studying in the Middle Eastern context between the people, the in-groups and the people who had the connections to the exterior, to the international trade and uh, labor flows and could make plans and mm-hmm. develop themselves with a view to capitalizing on those connections. And the people who were on the inside of the tech revolution and who had a line into the companies that were going public and the companies that mm-hmm. were rapidly expanding and the companies that were outside of it all and still using, you know, clunky desktop computers and talking about how nobody needs an email account. So so I saw an opportunity there and I took it, you know, to kind of basically position myself as an interpreter because I think that's what I've been able to do successfully in the past. And just kind of starting with the e-learning context because I've been a student forever for half my, over half my life at that point, um, to be able to um, explain to non-technical customers in the e-learning space, well, really in the everything space, in the corporate university, in the corporate setting, in the university setting, in the corporate learning and training, in the mm-hmm. construction, in the every area mm-hmm. in which you need to train people to do their jobs or to become to become more high-performing at doing their jobs, there was a space for transmitting um instructor-led training to the web. So I became the person who was able to explain what was possible, what mm-hmm. was difficult, and how to do that in a, you know, seamless, transparent manner, you know, with a, with a, using the web. Um, so that's how I got in, mm-hmm. um, basically trying to make that, seeing that similarity and trying to match it with my skills and um, experiences from the non-tech sector mm-hmm. in the tech sector, and then just um, obviously learning as much as I could from the point where I was working in e-learning. I was then when we were working in e-commerce, and then um, ERP or enterprise resource planning, mm-hmm. app messaging, mobile app messaging. You know, now um, 
fintech and insurtech. Mm-hmm. So it's really it's really just been a, a progression of access, levels of access. You know, the more you know, the more you know. Yeah. <laughs> so the more you, you're an insider, it's like, you know, the more networks and the more um, uh, opportunities you have to kind of leverage that knowledge against new contexts and new challenges, depending on how, um, where you're located geographically and what the technology allows and has, has recently developed to expand those horizons. Mm-hmm. Thank you for sharing that. And it, it sounds like you've you've seen a lot in tech, <laughs> to put it like that. Um, what what are you, with all your knowledge, um, and I know you're big on sharing knowledge um, about the tech sphere and, and what's going on in programming, what are you most excited about right now in what you're doing? What am I most excited about? Um, probably all of the underrepresented talent that I've been able to start to get familiar with in Europe mm-hmm. and all of the people who are lacking literally support and mentorship who have revolutionary, sustainable, critically needed products and services that they feel passionately about developing who are just not necessarily getting presented to people who have the funds, the know-how, and the bandwidth Mm -hmm. to elevate and support them. Um, So I'm really excited about being finally in a position to to meet those people, to connect them to others who are in the Mm -hmm. investment space, and to really create um, a network and an opportunity for Europe to capitalize on all of these incredibly talented people who are not fitting the mold of who has been running things for the last 50 years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's it's high time because we there are so many people who and we spoke about this in the past when we explored diversity in, in VC um, in a different framework. There's so many people in Europe, especially, who are just overlooked and underestimated. And it's a whole talent pool that's untapped. It's a whole wealth of of ideas that's not seeing the light of day. So I'm really glad to hear that that you're able to leverage your network and your knowledge to support these people. I don't see how you can't. I mean, I feel like it's, it's something that never ceases to surprise me that as challenging as it can be to make your way and build a career and deal with the whole um, challenge that technology presents, especially if you're not technically savvy, you're outside of the tech sector, you realize that, you know, algorithms, AI, something is out there that potentially is going to undermine your career and your opportunities that you are even presented with. I'm always shocked that people who have the the networks and they have the opportunities and they're given um, the platforms to succeed. Mm -hmm. um, So often fail to recognize that, you know, overlooking and not sharing the stories, the, uh, the, the opportunities that could be handily addressed by so many different and diverse um, people around them 
is is really critical and that by lifting other people you absolutely elevate yourself it mm -hmm. doesn't have to be um the scarcity mentality hunger games type <laughs> catapulting yourself to the top of the mm -hmm. heap because you know you get yours and then you'll see no it's like there's so much that needs to be revolutionized when you look at how we're dealing with the planet mm -hmm. and you look at how we're dealing with um, our mental health, when you look at how we're dealing with, you know, this gross inequity in society that's becoming mm -hmm. the people who have the ability to work from home all day, every day, and never leave their house because everything they need can be delivered mm -hmm. versus the people who are out delivering and running from place to place, trying to make sure that they get paid for the work that they're doing mm -hmm. without any immediate path to a different kind of job. Um, it's, it's clear to me, but I, I think that's probably based on how I grew up and where I grew up and the fact that, you know, I didn't have the advantages that I have now. Mm -hmm. And as someone coming from Brooklyn, coming from bad old Brooklyn, unsafe, segregated Brooklyn, not gentrified, largely white, upper middle class, Whole Foods on every corner Brooklyn. Um, it's, it's very clear to me that you don't succeed and you don't um, do well in your life without the requirement really that you invest in the next generation and that mm -hmm. you invest in other people so that especially if you didn't have it easy getting to where you've gotten to you want to do the minimum at least the minimum to make sure that other people don't have such a hard time yeah yeah and this is this is i, I agree with you that we I would say if you walk through a door, then why not leave the door open? Um, and when I, when I look to the tech ecosystem, there is, it's very insular still. It's quite difficult to understand from the outside um, because there's this sort of, I find it's getting a bit easier now with, you know, so many people sharing on social media. Um, I found especially Twitter has a couple of people, um, you amongst them, who, who really put out great content like Mac um, McConnell or Lolita Taub, for instance. Um, I love their Twitter accounts <laughs> just for, <laughs> just for, the, for the, the, the density and value of information they offer for, you know, people who are in the ecosystem, but also outside of it or sort of at the entrance point to it. Um, but you touched on something that I find we, we should talk about a bit more, which is one, the scarcity mindset that you have to be the one who goes to the top and nobody else can because, you know, that takes opportunities away from you. And the other thing really in what the ecosystem does or doesn't do to bring in people who are diverse, who have different points of view, who have all types of different backgrounds, you know, also you and I as social scientists um, sort of moving into the space. That's also quite unusual um, from what I've heard. So what do you think, what do you think needs to change? Or what can people do actually to change this, to, to open up this space? I think nothing changes without recognizing that the balance has been deeply unfair and mm -hmm. deliberately unfair for a very long time. And I think that that's the main reason that I'm so anti most of the DNI efforts that I have seen to date all over Europe, because I feel like 
you know, you have the diversity and inclusion band-aid that's being papered over a flesh wound. Mm. And um, it, it's not even um, a scratch, you know, you're talking about a gash that goes back generations. Mm -hmm. And the idea that many companies have unfortunately been led to believe is that we just need to appear to care through the creation of some position that will then be our shield. And mm -hmm. that will prevent, prevent anybody accusing us of not caring because look, we have this person and they are being paid to prevent us from being <laughs> accused of not caring. I mean, they're essentially PR mm -hmm. and knock to anyone who's legitimately trying to do this work, but doing this work without the power and the recognition and the respect from the people in power Mm -hmm. within the tech sector or any other is is a, is a losing game how should it work mm -hmm. you're, you're not going to be able to turn a massive tanker with more than you know mm -hmm. 20 50 100 100,000 people around if everyone in power got there because they knew someone or they went to school with someone or mm -hmm. they were told about a position that wasn't advertised yet or they um went through a process of screening that heavily elevated them because of their educational profile, because of how well they spoke mm -hmm. in front of a bunch of white men, and, 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 and. I mean, there's so many ways that the whole system sucks and has sucked for mm -hmm. a very long time for anyone who is not this model of who are the white male unicorns who have been successful in this space in the past. If you're too old, if you're too female, if you're too black, if you're too Asian, if you're too non-Ivy League, if you're too, in the you know case of Germany, if you're too foreign, uh, you know, all of these things are absolutely baked into the way that talent is evaluated. Mm -hmm. And you're never going to tell me that all of that inequity is going to be addressed by a three-hour workshop where you discover, <laughs> ah, bias is unconscious, and then you hire somebody of color usually, or yeah. a white woman generally, who is going to then field all those uncomfortable press questions about why are none of your managers female? Mm -hmm. You know, this is this is how I feel like um, we have to move away from that attitude in order to get to really looking at what is the problem. If the problem is about people of color being kept out of positions of responsibility, in management, then most likely they're not the only ones, you mm -hmm. know, it's very likely that white women are also being kept out of these positions of power. It's very likely that parents are being kept out of mm -hmm. this position if they're female. Um, it's very likely that older people, older meaning over 35, yeah. all of these biases, <laughs> well, because that's what it is in tech, right? globally, it's over 35. It's not old, old, it's just mm -hmm. older than the people who are running the joint. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, if that's the kind of bias that is baked in that is accepted that is not really considered bad because you know there was just a new york times article about this today that was sort of purporting to help the public by giving tips as to how you can avoid ai bias which most um companies are using one algorithm or another to help them sort through the masses of unqualified people who apply to positions in their companies mm -hmm. and it's 
it's sort of blithely giving this advice as to how you can avoid the AI resume screeners by using keywords, matching them to the keywords in the job description, doing all of these things. And then, of course, because they're not completely stupid, they add a few words of advice from the Stanford researchers who are researching bias and saying, well, you can do everything right in order to not get dinged and rejected by the AI algorithm, mm. but you have no control over whether the company is still prioritizing and weighting more heavily yeah. the alma mater of the founder, yeah. right? You you have no protection against uh, the powers that be at whatever company deciding that if you didn't go to MIT, you didn't go to Stanford, if you're not a VHU graduate, mm. we don't, we don't want to see you come looking for a management role. Because yep. we know who the managers that we want went to school. <laughs> we know who they are. And uh, we don't want to see anybody who doesn't look like that. Yep. There's all these levels. And I feel like that's the thing that I would like to see change. Um, particularly, you mentioned, you know, what can we do? Mm. Particularly when it comes to hiring and access to employment, we can insist that there are audits and that there's transparency. Because mm -hmm. right today we have neither. Yeah. Yeah, and you, you just mentioned something really interesting with the New York Times article. So I would, um, if I were to apply for a job, I would probably be, I might find it helpful to know what I can do, but it's really asking the wrong question because it puts the onus on the individual when really we're looking at a systemic problem. Because this is, it's not something that as an individual you can really, you basically have to live and make do with the consequences of the decision someone else made, and especially a very homogenous group of people made, on a, how certain systems work. Um, so I think that by by phrasing it like that, and I see it a lot around um, social media and sort of social media and mental health, and yes, it's certainly really important to make sure that you're using these tools in a way that it doesn't harm you, or harm your mental health, but really the question is why do these things look that way and what what needs to change at a much bigger level um, that we don't have to take these measures as individuals because it's really, it's a losing game. You can't, you can try to protect yourself, but it's really not asking the right question, in my opinion. Well, I see this even more as a black woman who's an immigrant in mm -hmm. Germany. I mean, you are not going to accomplish your way out of systemic bias mm -hmm. you're not you know because no one is acknowledging it and to the extent that it's not acknowledged it's very difficult to get measures to be taken to prevent it mm -hmm. so in terms of this you know um really it's the lean in mentality right mm -hmm. where we're not going to talk about who's running every company we're not going to talk about the all male all white all whatever background boards that are investing mm -hmm. in and invest you know, responsible for these companies. Let's talk about you, lone woman who dares to want power. Let's mm -hmm. talk about what you haven't done because you can always do more. Let's talk about who you don't resemble because you can always yeah. pretzel shape yourself into a less you, you. Um, mm -hmm. Let's talk about how everybody around you who's in their positions has earned and merited all that they've gotten, but you may have to do just a little bit more mm -hmm. in order to get just a little bit more. I mean, that's what we yeah. <laughs> really are talking about. Yeah. And that's what I think is equally as I think is the case with you is, is what's frustrating that mm -hmm. 
we're constantly having this conversation about let's shift individual responsibility on these marginalized persons Mm -hmm. so that we don't have to talk about what goes on in in the corporate world yeah and that's basically a way of saying we don't think we're ever going to change the corporate world because we don't have the power these are private corporations nobody wants to talk regulation and in order to avoid uh state-led you know top-down enforced kind of social change let's just leave it up to these visionaries and see what they do well what they do is what's good for them and that's why we have the algorithms that are largely scraped from where wikipedia Mm -hmm. and reddit Mm -hmm. whiter more male more youthful spaces one will not find on the internet but that's where a lot of these data sets come from Mm -hmm. and they are taken as the bible They are where the models are trained on. They are where the assumptions are made. They are the reason why you have things like the Google Translate algorithm that takes languages like Hungarian, Finnish, Tagalog that do not have any pronouns. Mm -hmm. And they come up with (laughs) standard match uh, translations that are saying he makes a lot of money. Mm -hmm. She takes care of the children. He is successful. She is an artist. Where is this coming from? Mm-hmm. Machines don't know, so it's got to be based on what they've been fed. What have mm-hmm. they been fed? They've been fed the data that is heavily weighted in favor of the kinds of people who are running most of the tech companies in most of the world. And they are completely ignoring the fact that most of this data is skewed very mm-hmm. heavily towards a Western, male, white, um, yeah. upper middle class perspective. Mm-hmm. And you know, as long as we keep having this conversation and assuming that tech is objective and neutral and the people who have been winning up until now just work their way up or were just so brilliant (laughs) that they got where they are and the rest of us should learn from them, we're not going to get anywhere because we we can clearly debunk those assumptions with even the most minimal amounts of research, whether people want to do that research or not. I don't know. I think there's a lot more appetite for victimizing and calling out um, the outliers who are highlighting the fact that, hey, I've been working for however many years. I've you know, never been promoted. I'm not getting any um, visibility. I'm never part of the conversation. The board seats are not coming my way. How is that the case when 50%, just starting with gender, 50% of the population we don't see Mm. In Germany, we don't see them anywhere. No, no. Where are the women? Yeah. Excuses, excuses. They don't apply. We don't know why. Yes, but if I were to start a company, and I and I have, <laughs> but if I were to start a company and staff it exclusively with black female PhDs from Ivy League U.S. schools, people would be up in arms, yeah. right? People yeah. would be up in arms because how do you? Where do you think you are? How do you do this? This is clearly a case of bias clearly exclusionary mm-hmm. what message does this send mm-hmm. well what it sends to me is that's pretty much what i would be doing if i started a company and ran it like the companies that are all around me because mm-hmm. i would know that the people that i hired are really really smart and really really accomplished and i would just say well i basically had to get my company up and running really quickly and i wanted to go to the places that i knew that the talent was you know it was was um, vetted and of the top world-class quality and nobody could say that I hadn't, mm. right? 
everybody has an Ivy League degree or three, uh, like I do, <laughs> what, what are you going to say? But it's that it's that uncomfortable aftertaste of you deliberately did not try. Mm -hmm. You deliberately did not try to include anybody who is not the same as you. Mm -hmm. That's what everybody would think. Maybe not say, but everybody would think that. That's exactly how it looks mm -hmm. when you're coming from outside of this young, wealthy, white, Western male demographic. Mm -hmm. It looks like y'all didn't try. You know, and that's why we have these problems with this incredibly lopsided world that you enter once you're in tech, because a lot of people are not trying, mm. you know, they're chilling, they're chilling with their friends from this school or their pals from this platform or their uh, poaching talent from other companies that look just like theirs. And then when they're called on the carpet and everyone asks, where are the women? Why no minorities? They say shrug. Nobody applies. We don't know why. <laughs> it's a pipeline problem, you know. We gotta gotta train them from you know kindergarten. We don't know. Mm. Don't look at us. But it's the same, you know. It's exactly the same. And I have been at this for way too long to believe that people who are making an effort. There's a great quote from a number of women who have started businesses in the U.S. who are on Twitter, and they say, "Listen, um, I don't know if you were following Beyonce's last." tour i got to see it here in berlin it's great mm -hmm. um she got she found 20 black synchronized swimmers for her video she found a whole bunch of black violinists and all of her band mm -hmm. were black people and they're like if she could find 20 black synchronized swimmers don't tell me you can't find one cfo yeah you know don't tell me you, you there's nobody in the world who can do your marketing <laughs> campaign at a senior level who's not a white man mm. oh yeah doesn't make sense so that's that's kind of where i stand on that question of what should happen and mm. what we need to do i think it's about transparency and it's about accountability mm -hmm. yeah and so maybe this is a contentious point but I find especially the latter, the accountability part, is very shaky to non-existent in an industry that is, again, very homogenous and run by people who are very young sometimes. Sometimes we see 22, 23-year-old CEOs. Um, and I, I sometimes feel like there's not... And I don't think youth necessarily excuses you from... Um, being accountable at all um, I just sometimes don't see any adults in the room in a sense like there's there's making excuses well, you, you and I you and I both know that there are adults in the room mm -hmm. but the adults are trying to play the game of mm -hmm. we also have no diversity in our networks and we also don't know where else we can invest besides in the mm -hmm. people who are constantly pushed in our faces who look like us mm -hmm. who know the same people who we can trust and vet because we all know the same people this is this is i think the, the big secret of the tech sector's lack of diversity you know somebody's paying for all of this mm -hmm. and uh the people paying for all of this are usually not children you know they're not new to this yeah. um it's a lot of older it's a lot of um maybe not necessarily wiser but <laughs> it's a lot of people who've been around um the tech industry uh or you know manufacturing that they're trying to involve SaaS solutions you know digital solutions in a greater proportion and they've been around this for a long time they know how this game is played and if they are um fine with this 
status quo where there's never any women, there's definitely never any black people, Asians, no, we're looking for leaders. You know, mm. that's the status quo that is currently the case in most of the US and all of Europe. Mm. You know, they're the ones that we're supposed to be looking to because suddenly we're having situations like the Pinterest debacle, mm -hmm. you know? And suddenly we're having shareholders who are like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Y'all paid out how many millions because of bias? You, we're losing what in market cap? Because you don't know how to treat a woman with respect when she comes into your organization, let alone when she's a senior executive. What? Mm -hmm. There has to be accountability. And unfortunately, I think we're going to see a lot more of these shareholder revolts where the accountability comes at the conclusion of a lawsuit. Mm -hmm. You know, because everybody believes that there is no oversight. The public, you know, can go hang. Who's going to know? if it's somebody's son, somebody's pal, somebody's protege who's getting all the money, mm -hmm. all the investment, and then running roughshod over the people around them because, you know, they're not trying to develop anyone. They're not trying to elevate anybody. Definitely not anybody who's a minoritized person. And, you know, this is what happens in terms of the culture in those search, in those situations. And unfortunately, what I think we're going to see more of is people saying, I've had enough of this. I've had enough of going from company to company only to find mm -hmm. one environment is more toxic than the next. Mm -hmm. And all they have to do is collect the information. If this could happen in the United States where you have an at-will clause as the central point of all employment contracts, you can be fired for no reason, mm -hmm. for any reason or for no reason at all. And if in that context, even, you're able to clearly demonstrate that you've been discriminated against, not treated fairly, denied promotion, denied fair salary compensation. If that's what it takes, what's what are your what are Europeans waiting for? Mm. You know, you should be in in every board meeting. You should be in every quarterly report, um, press call, asking what are, what are what are you guys doing about. Um, diversity. Mm. How are you protecting yourselves against the risk of being sued for unfairness and bias and a complete absence of diversity? Mm. Because I, I mean, at some point, it's it's going to become a legal issue. And it's going to become um, it's going to become a liability. Mm. Yeah, and, and a financial issue as well. Um, one of the things that you know we see time and again in the startup world is this idea that especially when we talk about networks and how you know there's there's sort of several factors at play but especially when you look at how deals are sourced or how people meet very often it's through <laughs> the concept of the warm intro so really when basically what I've heard and seen a lot is that when you're a founder and you're looking for funding, um, your job basically is to make sure that you're already in the network of the fund or make friends with one of the founders who are funded by a fund. And so it's it's very sort of easy to see how this creates an incentive and a dynamic where those networks are replicated themselves. And there were, I think COVID has changed this maybe slightly, but more out of convenience than I think really for um diversity reasons there's a 
bit of an increase, I feel like, in funds being willing to take cold mails. Because when I, when I entered this world, I was just sort of aw... Not awestruck is not the word I'm looking for. <laughs> I was... Um, my mind was blown, really, that it would be a thing among investors to say, like, oh, no, we don't take we don't take cold emails. Like, that's not how we do our business. Like, what? I have a great idea and I can't even pitch an investor because I'm not coming through the network. That, to me, just sounded right. so weird, even just out of a, you know, just in terms of business logic. Like, why would you not want to have deals come your way? Well, a lot of this stuff is not very scientific, as I'm sure you know by now. Yeah. And a lot of this stuff is not very profitable either, which is unsurprising considering the unscientific nature of it all. But I think that the main thing that you touched on that I would heavily underline is the idea that performance and um, productivity and innovation these are all things that we know do not come from people who are chilling with their homies in a locker room. Mm. And that's basically what you have if, I don't care what gloss you put on it, what high tech, what visionary, what marketing pitch you choose to adopt. If you have a bunch of people who maybe know each other from school or they know each other socially, mm. or they happen to have met and made an effort to meet the kinds of people who have the kinds of networks that can help each other, these are not people who are trying to create environments where they can perform at their A-level, bring their A-game every day because they are going to be challenged and they are going to be competing for the best solutions to whatever problems they're trying to solve. No, mm -hmm. it's just not. So for me, that's what the big journey into VC has been an incredible reinforcement of is that realization that these people are not trying to change the world they're not i mean this is what we've all been sold as the point of the tech industry mm -hmm. but you know these are people who are trying to be in control um to remain in control in many cases and to do just enough to make a lot of money and appear to be visionary because they were the first you know to put their e-bikes on the street or <laughs> their scooters or whatever it is that's going to end up in a landfill destroying more of the planet mm. and this is exactly where it's at i'm sorry to say you know it's not mm. at changing the game for anybody outside of the global north mm. it's not about changing the game for individuals who are already having a difficult time keeping up with the pace of economic development, mm -hmm. it's by us, for us, for a very, very small percentage of the globe. And that's what I find is, is the really troubling part mm. of the whole VC industry, especially now that it's getting this reputation of being the only way to build businesses, which it clearly is not. Yep. Um, you know, it's it's been coasting for a very long time now on this idea that because it is exclusive, it's better. And because it is, in some cases, representative of enormous wealth, it's somehow a model. And it's manifestly neither. And just looking at the results will tell you <laughs> how little of a model uh, the venture industry is. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. There's this that you, you just mentioned two really really interesting points and I want to start with non 
this this idea that VC is really the only way or the the sort of main way to go, because this is something that comes up with the founders I work with a lot, where I feel like there's such a um, this it's there's such a heavy slant towards you know when you build a business and you have to raise VC money and that's sort of how you do it, when there are really a lot of other ways to do it and even if you don't you know it's it's a bit I don't think there's a standard way to do it and for some people also you know if you have family commitments and it is it is important to sort of figure out for instance how how to make a living from your business maybe at an earlier point than someone who's 23 and can still afford to you know sleep on their parents couch for maybe half a year or raise a friends and family around but still there are so many people I think who you who lose a lot of time trying to fit their business model to the VC model as opposed to, because that's just what's been sold as opposed mm-hmm. to really the ecosystem encouraging them you know, to explore other other avenues and just be like well you know you could you could raise a, a small round once or you could do revenue based financing or you could do crowdfunding or there's so many ways to do this and I feel like we're just with sort of these changes that we're seeing in the VC industry now of rolling funds and, and, and angel funds and, and I don't know what I could really see there being a lot of value and encouraging people to do it a lot more their own way than to go with the paradigm that's been in place I think that's absolutely true but I also think that we're up against a massive marketing machine mm-hmm. and that's really the secret of a VC, right? I mm-hmm. mean, it's become this desirable enclave for ambitious people who like money because mm-hmm. um, it's pre- it's presented as this pinnacle of decision-making and power and networking and know-how by the people within the industry. Um, and so I think that the the crazy part is when I run into investors, uh, when I run into founders, I should say, uh, who other investors put me in touch with, and I start to think as as big as I can, big picture, what is happening in the context of the city where they're based, in the country mm-hmm. where they're based, in the region where they're based, you know, how big is um, the TAM or the total um, achievable market size for this entrepreneur? And I realized nobody's had that conversation with them. They might be people who've gone through accelerators. They might be people who've mm. um, already had the benefit, you would think, of experts. And yet, you know, they have rarely, if ever, had the benefit of anyone looking at their businesses and saying, okay, what can you do without outside funding? What degree of maturity is your marketing strategy at? Could you be a good candidate for crowdfunding? Have Mm. you got an idea of what options you have for funding your product or service development? Like they haven't even had that conversation Mm -hmm. um, because there's so much, there's so much rapid um, noise around the idea that, well, you got to get into an accelerator, this accelerator, which has good relationships with these investors. And then you have to make yourself attractive to these investors. And then you have to, you know, do all of the networking so that the investors will see that you're, you know, investable. And and it's like, what is this, what does any of that have to do with building 
the best product, getting it to market, ensuring that you have nailed the product audience and the feature roadmap. What does any of that have to do Mm. with um, being an entrepreneur who knows how to sell to, who knows how to sell something people want? Yeah. Right? Um, So I think it has very little to do with uh, the process and, and it's just... I don't know. I don't think VC is going anywhere soon, but I do think that the number of missed opportunities based on this incredibly narrow view of young, upward, upper class white males being the only ones who will lead any enterprise to successful exits mm-hmm. is going to harm the industry overall in a big way. Because as you say, there's too many alternate financing vehicles. There's too much awareness that's growing amongst Mm. the communities that we never see represented in BC that, hey, maybe it's time to learn about crowdfunding and maybe it's time to join together and build a syndicate. And maybe we don't need to keep asking these people for money because they really don't want to invest. Mm. You know, I had had an entrepreneur yesterday talking to me and they said in, in the end it's really hard to get these people to give you any money it, it just is i mean mm. it's not um it's not really uh the process that i expected after this person had spent a year in an accelerator and i thought hmm, a year in an accelerator and at the end of it no takers on any level not even at the bank level where you know it's collateralized debt mm. nothing you know, and this is somebody who's a, who's an immigrant. This is somebody who's a person of color, and mm. it's the same story. And I just feel like, yeah, this isn't going to last forever because now it's not just the wealthy, it's not just the privileged. We all got the internet now, mm. right? So we can share these stories and we can talk about ways to circumvent this madness because it's madness when only one person, um, one person's idea of success counts. Mm and gets funded and is represented when we're scrolling through those LinkedIn feeds and we're seeing, you know, yet another successful exit for three white guys, you know, (laughs) we're all under 40. Like, I mean, exactly. Yay. And it's just like, what? maybe we'll see less of that because this is never a good idea, but it's certainly Mm. not a good idea in the context of what's happening all over the world. Mm. Um, Again, I, I go back to my, Example, when I do that, is it the same yay? Me and my (laughs) elite educated black women pals have decided to take our PhDs and collectively do something and make money. Mm. Is that the same message? And if and if not, then why not? Yeah. Will you will you see will you see glowing write ups and all, you know, in all the tech media, like look at Nakima and all her Look at Nakima and all the black. They're so brilliant. They're so visionary. So qualified. No, it's not going to be that. It's going to be black women doing some black thing. And here we are reducing it to the superficial indicators. Mm -hmm. But that's not happening when we see trio of white guys after trio of white guys after trio of white guys. It's like nobody is looking at what that message is for those of us who don't fit that demographic. And that's what the message is. Same message. Yeah, I'm just I'm just chuckling on a, on a more lighthearted note because they they seem to always come in trios. I don't know why. <laughs> it's always the trio. It's a mess with the vests. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. The, the, the Patagonia, Patagonia vest. vest. But yeah. that's a whole other thing. Yeah. <laughs> 
yeah. Um, <laughs> for sure. Okay. And the other thing you mentioned a while ago um, that I want to touch on too is this, when we look at VC or just the, the ecosystem in general, it's, so we have certain people who get funding and then they create quote unquote solutions or products um, that tend to represent a quite likely the world that they live in and the needs that they anticipate for people who are similar to them excuse me similar to them and it's it's led to as you were saying there's a lot of groups of people who are underserved in well you know the western world or even you know the global north um and we're not really talking about the global south or sort of the bigger picture a lot in, in vc anyways but two things that really <laughs> that are just my personal pet peeves that really stood out um in the past year of of where i feel like this is very evident is sort of the conversation around flying taxis and urban instant grocery delivery because this is really just something that's very much intended or it's it's something that will only be accessible to a very small part of the population especially when we're talking about flying taxis and then the other thing is also what what gets neglected so much I find is is in something that you mentioned at the very beginning of our conversation is who does the work right especially when we're talking about this work from home situation right now someone who's who's affluent or more privileged they can sit at home all day every day and have other people bring whatever they want to their apartment if they live in a city but we in this ecosystem we barely to never talk about the people who actually have to do this work and who have to do the legwork or who have to bike or, you know, do do all this, well, who actually have to bring you the things. Um, and I don't want to see more of, of the same in that sense because it can't be that we have business models that prioritize um, the exits of, you know, the, the white founder trio um, and they get really wealthy with it and then a lot... A lot of other part people aren't even able to make a living or a decent living participating Correct. in their product systems. Because they're not the target and they're not mm. included in the sense of being a limited and a valuable and a sought after resource, mm. right? Labor is cheap and certain people's labor is cheaper than anybody else's. And mm. those are the people that you see who are working for certain delivery services, who are expected to build and to create the value that mm. is then um, profited upon <laughs> by the owners yeah. of the IP, of all of the um, business concept behind these exploitative, extractive um, companies. Mm. And I think the best way that I've heard it described was in a commentary by someone who is talking about uh, the Silicon Valley um, accelerated case of this in particular. And they were saying, you know, these are services created by and for people who want to replace their parents, right? <laughs> it's a, specifically yeah. their, their mothers, yeah. right? And, and so we have a lot of these folks who feel like the hardest thing that they have to challenge they have to deal with when they wake up in the morning is how to get some kind of food. It doesn't have to be healthy, some kind of food in their house, mm. how to get cleaning services to do the work that, you know, mom is not there to do. Mm -hmm. uh, and similar kinds of 
task-based um, labor that is frequently presented as female, mm -hmm. typically undervalued, and that none of these young visionaries want to do. So they're thinking, <laughs> how can we solve this problem for ourselves? And in typical founder tunnel vision, there have to be millions of people like ourselves out there. Let's solve this problem for all of them too. And so there you have more of these kind of uh, bodega is a good example, but all of these services that are effectively capitalizing on cheap and exploited um, gig work mm -hmm. so that massive profits can be extracted by the owners mm -hmm. who themselves are just trying to create stand-ins for infantilized males like themselves. Mm-hmm. Sorry, that's how it looks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I'm missing some corner of, you know, the discourse, but that's, that's how it often looks and mm -hmm. plays out. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. It, 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 it goes, it, it connects to something I was saying earlier where it, it sometimes really feels like there's not an adult in the room where it's just a, a bunch of, hmm. Yeah, I, I don't know that it's that it's the, the lack or the absence mm -hmm. of adults, or if it's that the adults have yeah. the adults with the money are cool with it. Yeah, yeah, and I think this is right. a very pertinent question to raise. Like, how how is this happening when there's not just the founders or the the, the decision makers in a company, but there's really another level of influence or maybe responsibility with the investors who actively decide to finance an endeavor like for instance the one with the deliveries that we talked about earlier well this is what we're starting to see in new york and i'm sure that other um, municipalities and hopefully countries will follow soon we're starting to see again back to pinterest we're mm -hmm. starting to see public corporations facing severe resistance from their shareholders and or proposed legislation and regulation from the authorities of their particular industry that are saying, you know, if you are blown up to the size that your market capitalization is 100 million or higher, you need to demonstrate to us how you are ensuring that your board is representative of the demographic that you serve mm. and how all of your levels of management are also representative and that i just read about this week so i know that it's relatively new but mm. it's starting to be a real threat and a real possibility mm. of becoming policy that's enacted in new york state that means all these companies that have all their diversity at the bottom kind of like the German federal state um, <laughs> that are incapable of promoting anybody who's too, you know, too black, too foreign, too female, whatever it is, mm. um, they are going to face serious problems and legal problems going forward, I hope, because this is going to become something that is going to, I, I believe, become a feature of the publicly traded unicorns. Mm -hmm. As soon as you're on the public market and maybe it's too late to give pause to anyone who's on the investment side looking to profit and exit but certainly whoever is left holding the ball when 
you become um, a publicly listed corporation, you're going to have to answer those questions. Mm -hmm. And you're going to have to fix those problems if those problems exist. And you're not going to be able to, I don't know, pull a Adam Newman, we work and just parachute <laughs> the hell out of it because you got your money. <laughs> Is someone yeah. else's problem now? No, it's, it's really something that I think uh, for publicly traded corporations is absolutely happening mm -hmm. and it's necessary because it's very, very difficult, as we know, in the private sector when you're smaller than publicly traded mm -hmm. um, level of visibility and transparency. It's hard to get the disclosures. You've got a lot of other competing um, interests that maybe your city or municipality is trying to boost their region as a hub for business. Nobody wants to look into what you're actually doing. Mm -hmm. If you're profitable, <laughs> you're creating jobs for somebody, then everybody wants to kind of support you and keep you going because this looks good for everyone around, mm -hmm. right? So there's, it's very difficult to ask government level or regulatory bodies to kind of step in at any point prior to a company um, IPOing and becoming public, mm -hmm. but um, yeah, you know this whole mythical, much desired unicorn status. I hope and believe that it's going to soon become a much different endeavor mm -hmm. for these, you know, these folks who don't necessarily have the expertise, don't necessarily have the curiosity, aren't necessarily incentivized in any way to care about diversity. Mm -hmm when they reach out to Goldman Sachs and other banks and suddenly hear, oh, you don't have any female representation on your board. We're not trying to IPO you. No, can't do it. Mm -hmm. Don't want the hassles, go somewhere else. Mm -hmm. And then they realize, oh, we gotta get some women because <laughs> nobody's gonna help us IPO. You know, New York Stock Exchange is out, out of reach. And then you're gonna have this other hurdle, which is after you find a woman <laughs> somewhere to stick on your board <laughs> so you don't look too bad and you're trying to IPO, then you're gonna be public in every quarterly review, you might have shareholders who say, wait a minute, wait a minute, with all these men, all these white people, you're trying to be a global corporation, we smell lawsuits, you know, we mm. see bias. What are you going to do then? That might actually be enough to give some of these investors and some of these founders serious pause mm. as to how they need to be thinking about and growing and developing the culture of their companies prior to getting to 100 million unicorn status. Mm. Yeah, we. I want to switch gears a little bit um, on this conversation because we haven't. I want to talk to you about a project of yours, um, Tech and Color, and what you're doing with it. So I've seen online that you're really trying to get together the European, um, or basically, I, the way I understood it was underrepresented um, people in the European tech ecosystem. Can you talk a bit more about what you're doing and, and if you have any events coming up or what's going on there? Sure, that's something that is very near and dear to my heart because I just got, as, as many people did, so caught up in the events of 2020 and the sense that, you know, Black Lives Matter was a real catalyst for many people, myself included, mm -hmm. to look hard at what barriers to entry, what barriers to success I was seeing in European context specifically, but for black professionals and, you know, black talent that like myself is usually 
um, in many cases, you know, way overqualified for whatever mm. work they do, you know, way um, over accomplished for the levels that they're at and real interest in seeing not just how to amplify and effectively solve the problem of um, Blacks in the, context, in the context of Europe being excluded from professional opportunities, but also others who are coming from all kinds of different ethnicities and racial backgrounds who nobody talks about. Um, because for me, particularly having spent so much time in North Africa and the Middle East and having analyzed and studied the systemic, the colonial and the historical structures of oppression and um, exclusion that operated way back when and operate still today, it became really obvious to me when watching all the crowds of people out in Paris, out in Munich, out in Berlin, mm. out in the Netherlands, you know, everywhere protesting against this racialized violence and suppression and um, discrimination against Black people in the United States. And then kind of shifting focus or not having access or not winning as much global attention when it's the police harassing and brutalizing um, Black people in Paris mm -hmm. or systemically oppressing Muslim people in Belgium. I mean, mm -hmm. these are not really that different in terms of the history, sure, in terms of the structural um, challenges possible. But it's not such a huge leap to say, if Black people have difficulty penetrating this world of privilege and power and money that frequently becomes the, the environment when you're talking about tech and investment in Europe, why wouldn't that be equally the case for Muslims, for immigrants yeah. from other parts of the world like Asia and, you know, all the people that we never see and we never see in positions of power. And when we do, it's one and they're tokenized mm. and they have no power or their power is very severely limited by the fact that they are all by themselves. And, you know, I, I think that tech and color came out of based on my investment and angel connections, having been exposed to so many incredible people of color working in Europe in a variety of sectors in tech without the visibility mm. and just thinking, okay, so I want to be one of the connectors. I'm naturally that way. Anyhow, I want to be one of the people who's catalyzing more visibility, more investability and more connections among and between um, the people who are themselves doing the work and just not reaping the rewards that they should. Because for me, there's a very clear connection between the types of entrepreneurs who are trying to build companies and build a team mm -hmm. at the earliest stages who inevitably say, well, I don't know anybody who knows um, deep tech, or I don't know anybody who is a whiz at data visualization, or mm -hmm. I don't know anyone who, whatever it may be, and yet somehow, they always get funded. They always find someone. Usually the someone looks a lot like the someone who's looking. And then when, when you've got an established C-level team, when you've got an established founder team, when you've got um, the people who are working on the product 
at the equity sharing level, um, you're told, oh, well, we don't know why there's no one diverse who's part of our network or part of the pipeline or, you know, maybe they're just, they don't exist. Mm. So this is why Tech and Color EU exists is to create those networks, create those connections, and ultimately to create the visibility that's lacking for the investment community, for the entrepreneurial community itself, and also to try to bridge some of the historical fragmentation problems that I see where you have black and brown entrepreneurs in Sweden, for instance, that are trying so hard and doing so much just to gain visibility within uh, Sweden that mm -hmm. they don't think about the potential to make their product or service successful outside of Sweden in one of the 27 countries of the EU. Mm. And there's lots of that that I've been part of and that I've witnessed. So the idea is to link up these communities and link up these professionals in a way that makes them more immediately visible to both startup um, company leaders and established corporate leaders so that we can put an end to this narrative of, you know, well, how many black people are there? Muslims? I don't know any, you know, that we hear when we talk with investors and we talk with founders and they say, shrug, I'm not responsible for diversity. That's not something I know anything about. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Or the, the, the often cited pipeline problem, like, oh, we don't, we just, they're just not any of them. We don't, we don't see that. Um, and Am I right in remembering that you also occasionally do workshops or skill sharing events? Yeah, I do a lot of those. Um, <laughs> I just I just finished recording one for the um, unconventional ventures accelerator out of the Nordics. Um, they have uh, this amazing accelerator program for specifically women and underrepresented founders, and I just did. Um, masterclass for them on avoiding bias in product design mm, so that was mm -hmm. lots of fun mm -hmm. and you know I'm doing more and more speaking but primarily focusing on algorithmic bias and ways of recognizing it and avoiding it um, and in terms of the hands-on kind of career and tech career focused workshops those those I tend to do in the context of my nonprofit, Loop, mm -hmm. and those I tend to do with either the current cohort of women who are part of the organization or um, as, as students or outside of that in a more public context. Mm -hmm. Cool. So as we're, as we're slowly coming towards the end of this podcast, I, there's one question I always ask my guests um, to sort of instill little bit of hope into our listeners <laughs> um, that things can can actually change or there are ways to to really chip away at the things we talked about or we, we also talked about in, in other episodes was there ever um, a moment in your career that was very much a when pigs fly situation when it you know your environment or the people around you sort of signal that, you know, this is, this is never going to happen. Like, just get it out of your mind, forget it. Um, and you did actually make it happen. I mean, I think that as a black woman in the tech space, which is so often 
hostile, unwelcoming, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, arguably the entire um, U.S. corporate st- structure, certainly. I think that that's, that goes without saying. I mean, no, no, no. It's absolutely <laughs> the thing that you you have as a constant throughout most of your career. Um, I was tweeting last week about something that, um, I'm not sure what triggered it any longer. I'm trying to think, or I'd have to go back in my tweets to figure out what it was that triggered it. But somebody was saying something similar, you know, this one time that someone had been a naysayer and and they'd proven this person wrong over, you know, long years of, of struggle. So I woke up, saw this tweet, <laughs> and went on a tear on Twitter because I had flashbacks once again. This happens a lot. Um, and I was thinking back to the first job that I had out of university. So not undergrad or uh, master's level, but once I finished my PhD mm-hmm. and I was working with a group of PhDs, but all in organizational psychology, which is obviously not my area of specialty. Mm-hmm. And this this would happen many times more since that point, but it was my first experience of working with a group of specialists that had different educational backgrounds or academic kind of specialty than, than myself that didn't miss an opportunity to let me know that I was an experiment and that I was mm. a test case and that they weren't really sure that I could do what they did in the way that they did it because I didn't have exactly the same academic background as they did. And I remember having um, interacted with the, the CEO of this company in very strange ways from the time that is actually a much juicier story than what I put onto <laughs> Twitter. Um, I was interacting with this person in a really strange way because basically they decided to hire me and it was this very tokenized and tokenizing experience of, you know, we're going to, we're going to hire you because you went to Harvard and, you know, you're so smart and and you're black Mm. and we don't have any black people at our company. We had one, but that person was completely different and you're Harvard. So (laughs) it's a different level of black person that now we're going to hire, but we're never going to miss an opportunity to let you know that you're a test and that you're here by grace of our imaginative capacity and not because of anything you've done or can do. And regardless of how well you perform, regardless of how much, how much you enjoy the work, um, which was basically anthropology, corporate anthropology, so it was amazing, mm-hmm. um, we're going to hold you to a standard that essentially has nothing to do with you and has everything to do with us. So this was the environment where I was never being chosen to go and engage with the big ticket clients of the firm at that time, the Cisco's and the similar massive U.S. companies Mm -hmm. in tech or in any other sector, I was being chosen and put on speed dial when they needed someone to go to Detroit and pitch to, you know, a car maker or somebody who had a lot of diversity mandated because of their union or whatever status. That was when it was time to grab me and where are you? And you can't take time off. You have to be available. And among the weird things that came out of that um, dynamic was a a far greater than I felt was normal interest by the CEO in my private life. And that came about because the CEO I discovered from the almost exclusively black secretarial pool, the CEO was a frequent traveler to Europe. Mm. And so (laughs) the CEO and their wife who would 
frequently participate in office activities and so on, would regale the office with tales of their travels to Europe, which was this unattainable goal that was only for rich people and successful people like mm -hmm. the owners of the company. And that was something that I totally, you know, screwed up because I joined the company, you know, my partner's coming from Austria. I'm frequently going to Austria <laughs> when I'm not because I hated Chicago with a passion. Um, we were kind of flying to, you know, Italy and we were flying to Paris and we're going all over the place to just get the hell out of Chicago frequently. And that didn't go down well at all. So they resented me for daring to travel to Europe while black, because I guess I was setting a bad example for all the other black people in the secretarial pool. But at some point, um, you know, I had a, a German, East German guy who was, had washed up in Chicago somehow, who was my tutor, my German tutor. And I had him coming at like five o'clock, six o'clock to the office so I could practice speaking German with him so that I could learn German instead of Austrian <laughs> dialect, which is all I spoke at the time. Um, and, you know, and, and it, this clearly enraged the CEO. Like he was just incensed. And at some point we had a tiff because that's what it was. Um, and this is what ticked off this, this Twitter thread on, on Twitter. Um, I had a client at, I think it was an agricultural manufacturing company and their head of HR was uh, my main contact for the, for the assignment. I flew out to Oklahoma City, uh, did the day of focus groups, management interviews, then went and had dinner with this guy who was essentially grilling me about my background because I didn't realize it until years later. But clearly that person was shocked that a black woman would be sent to Oklahoma City to do any of the things he understood this corporate consulting firm would do. And so he's asking where I went to school and how I came to be, you know, in front of him working <laughs> for this company. Um, and he was palpably upset when I told him, well, you know, I went to Harvard I'm from the East Coast. I grew up in New York. And so I go back to Chicago, hated Chicago. And the head of the company that I'm working for at some point calls me into his office and starts berating me and telling me how unhappy he is with just everything about me. No joke. This is, you know, we had HR and HR was kind of, you know, cowering in the other room. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this man is yelling and screaming at me at some point because he just escalated as upset that I sat there impassive. He told me specifically, I'm hearing from our customers that you are arrogant, <laughs> you know, which sends me reeling because I'm thinking, who on earth would, you know, no one I know would ever call me arrogant. That's just, just does not fit. But who of these customers could possibly have said that had just come back from Oklahoma City? Mm -hmm. So <laughs> being grilled by this man who is upset that I, you know, went to an Ivy League university. So he's like, you're arrogant and I can't read you and I'm just everyone in this office knows that you want to move to Germany and why you would want to move to Germany. I can't, I can't tell. We fought against those people. We won. We beat them. Why? <laughs> Just, it was, I mean, now looking back, it's insane. But at the time, I mean, I was, I was shaking. Mm. I was completely impassive because I was so shut down and shocked by how anybody three times my age could behave like this to me mm -hmm. directly out of, you know, grad school. Yeah. And 
I remember feeling so kind of beaten down and crazy, you know, because I went home and I was just like, maybe I am crazy. You know, what am I talking about? Am I really going to move to Germany? Like, why, why do I have this ambition? Why do I think that that can be my life? Mm. You know? And then I, I was saying in the, in the tweet, (laughs) the tweet storm that I ended up putting out on the weekend, I was like, wow, fast forward, you know, 21 years, 22 years here. I live in Germany. (laughs) I'm working in tech. I've left these clowns in their organizational consulting universe. And, you know, I've been here for quite a while, um, Mm. doing the things that I've wanted to do forever. And this man is probably no longer breathing. Who knows where he ended up? But the point is, this is how a lot of things in my trajectory have looked. And I think I'm not alone in that. I think there's a lot of women of color and there's a lot of women generally who just are facing this constant low level onslaught of, well, why do you want to go there? Why do you want to do that? Why Mm -hmm. do you want to achieve this? How come you need to push your way into these places where no one who looks like you exists or is visible. Mm-hmm. I think that that's really the cool thing. Actually, my daughter is the one who brought this to my attention a while ago. She said, you know, your whole career, your everything you've accomplished is basically a giant fuck you to somebody. <laughs> <laughs> this is, she's 17. <laughs> saying something. And I was like, no, you probably, that sounds about right. You know, because it's true. Um, because it's true. And I think that that's pretty much um, just the first example, the most visible example I can think of was this person saying, you know, this is just insane from his narrow minded Chicago perspective that, you know, I, a black woman from Brooklyn, should want and dream of moving to Berlin. And what? How? <laughs> Yet, you know, here we are. Imagine, as I just read a friend on Twitter who is. Um, an African Nigerian national and uh, was saying how many naysayers that she'd had to get past in order to become a software engineer and do well in that field and Mm -hmm. the kinds of negative comments and belittling comments that she'd had to kind of brush off to get to be where she is working in Berlin now. And she said, you know, imagine if I had listened to any of this. Imagine Mm -hmm. if I had internalized any of this. This is why women leave tech and for me it's like well this is why women throw up their hands and start their own companies and Mm -hmm. leave the whole corporate grind because you're constantly being faced with crazy people Mm -hmm. usually men almost always white who behave as if their opinions should matter more than your abilities Mm -hmm. and i'm happy to say that luckily they don't (laughs) (laughs) definitely prove that you know these are just bumps in the road that you kind of have to navigate it's sad that they're there but you you definitely can and should look at them as the minimal kind of obstacles that are still existing in uh in the corporate in the corporate world mm-hmm. because they're, they're not they're not um in most cases they're not people who have the power to define what you're capable of or what you will achieve Mm. I couldn't imagine a better end to this podcast. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that. And before before um we say goodbye, where can people find you online? 
Oh, well, it depends on what they're looking for. So <laughs> my personal website is um, nakima.net, which is spelled like my first name. And mm -hmm. it's where I do uh, consultation, speaking, all the bookings that involve um, consulting based on tech and algorithmic equity. Um, Frauenloop.org is the website of my nonprofit, Frauenloop, that is currently going into its fifth year this summer. And that's where you can get information about the program and what we're doing and the research we're producing and that type of stuff. And techincolor.eu is the launching point for um, the Tech in Color Network that you will be hearing more about very soon. Exciting. I'm looking forward to that. Hi, thanks for listening all the way to the end. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. If you want to keep in touch, you can subscribe to my newsletter at the link in the show notes. Um, follow me on Twitter or on LinkedIn or follow the podcast on Spotify to keep in the loop. All right. Thanks again for listening and I'll see you next week. Bye.